Okay, so uh, thanks for being with us, Mark. Um, that, so let's begin by talking a little bit about your background. Uh, I know you've done, uh, you've got a PhD in literature, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, my background is sort of, uh, I, I guess I took a fairly circuitous route towards uh, where I'm at now. So yeah, I, I was a journalist for uh, a few years after finishing college, and then I went back and did a PhD uh, and then did a postdoc. So I was an academic for, I guess, five, six years altogether, uh, and then started doing the kind of work that I, that I'm doing now. I started writing, uh, essays and literary criticism and things like that. And, uh, that sort of led to this, to this book. Okay. And, uh, the academic life didn't, uh, didn't, didn't appeal to you, no? <laughs> well, it was a sort of combination of things. I, I, uh, finished my PhD in 2010, which at that point, when I started, uh, academia seemed like a sensible sort of career to go into with a potential job at the other end of the PhD. And as you know, the, the arts <laughs> kind of dropped out of that delusion, um, at a certain point, I guess 2008, 2009. So yeah, I mean, it was a combination of things. It was that and it was also, uh, a sort of a, an element of realizing along the way that what I was really most drawn to in, in the work that I was doing in academia was not the scholarship per se or yeah certainly the teaching, it was actually the writing. And so I started to kind of um, pursue that in, in other ways as well. And uh, yeah, I liked uh, the, the sort of the prospect of being read by uh, at least in theory, large numbers of people, which academia for all its benefits doesn't really offer that. So that was one of the strands of it as well. That is certainly true that. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, that is certainly true that we have small audiences. Yeah. Small but yeah. devoted audiences. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, um, what appealed to you about that intersection, I guess? Well, you know, about being an essayist because, you know, you, you are a journalist. You've done academic work you've published uh you've published an academic book on banville is that right yeah that's right John Banville. Yeah. yeah so what like i mean essayist is you know it's not really i don't know it's, it's not really the trajectory uh people go at if they want to be a writer do you think yeah it's not a real job i suppose but it's also i mean i guess uh I, I sometimes I fairly often get described as an essayist and occasionally describe myself in that way myself. Uh, I'm a little bit dubious about the term because, sure. I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I love essay writing and I love the form itself as a sort of a description of what you do. It's a bit of a tricky one because it, I mean, for me, I could just as comfortably be described as a journalist. And so my tendency to describe myself as an essayist can come across as sort of trying to distinguish myself from other journalists who aren't as literary or whatever. Um, so there's an element of kind of um, sort of self curation in describing oneself as an essayist potentially, particularly when you do the kind of, the kind of work that I do. So yeah. And at the same time, I'm slightly uh, wary of describing myself as a journalist because I don't see myself as having those kind of classic sort of journalistic skills. You know, I'm not a guy, I'm not a person who goes into a situation and has, 
uh, a particular question that they want answered and sort of doggedly goes after the answering of that question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a reporter in a very loose sense, as in I sort of go into places and hang out and sort of notice what I notice and, and sort of figure out what I wind up figuring out. But for me, uh, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I, I, I clearly I have trouble describe, describing or categorizing. <laughs> no, what no, it is. that's pretty good, I think. Do you, yeah. see, do you, do you like have any, uh, I guess heroes or, um, people who sort of influence where you're at in terms of, how you sort of define the genres, like is, I don't know, like are you in the tradition of Orwell or I know Montaigne or people like that? Um, I really admire, certainly I really admire Montaigne. Um, you know, I've, I've read and enjoyed a lot of Orwell, but they, they're not really people who I would have in mind as sort of, um, you know, paragons of what it is I'm trying to do. I get, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very kind of drawn to, um, I guess a, a, an older generation of American kind of literary journalists, people like uh, Joan Didion, uh, to give a fairly sort of obvious example. Uh, John McPhee is a big, a big person for me. Um, Annie Dillard, those people who kind of operate on the sort of blurry intersection of uh, journalism and literature is what I'm particularly drawn to. Yeah, lit, lit, I guess literary, literary journalism is, is, is a nice way of putting it. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so if we're going to talk about like your, um, your last book, uh, To Be a Machine Adventures Among Cyborgs, Utopians, Hackers, and the Futurists Solving the Modest Problem of Death. Um, bit of a mouthful, Mark, I think, but, uh, yes. but, uh, it, it gets to the essence of it. Now, I mean, firstly, I guess, I mean, I, when I read the book, I absolutely loved it, uh, because of that. I mean, my background is philosophy and literature. Um, so, I'm firstly, I'm wondering what were your motivations for uh, writing writing that book, and uh, tell us a little bit about what it is about. Yeah, well, so I guess it would make sense to say what it's about just briefly first. It's about um, this movement known as transhumanism, which is, uh, I guess, a, a social movement largely predicated on the notion that we should, that we can, and should use. Uh, technology to sort of push out the boundaries of the human condition and ultimately become immortal through things like, uh, you know, sort of speculative ideas like uploading our minds to machines and, you know, merging with artificial intelligence and so on. Um, and so this is obviously a very extreme and radical idea, but it's something that is, um, it has like a very firm foothold in, in Silicon Valley. Um, and there's, you know, as eccentric as it is, there are quite a few, uh, very powerful and influential figures in Silicon Valley and in the tech world generally who are quite, you know, invested in this idea. So for me, it, uh, became a way of not just writing about this very, uh, radical and strange, uh, set of ideas and group of people, but also a way to write about, uh, technology in general and the position that technology and the idea of technological progress kind of occupies in our culture. And, uh, I guess like I came to it via fairly sort of circuitous routes, as is my way of things, I suppose. But, um, I, I wrote a very short, um, kind of magazine article, uh, about eight or nine years ago for a magazine that I wrote for after college. Um, and it was quite a, like I say, it's like a short, fairly frivolous piece about, um, the fact that this movement existed and there was these people out there who had these very weird radical ideas about the future of the human body and the human mind. Uh, 
And so I wrote the piece and just sort of um, put it aside really for, for years and went back and did my PhD. Uh, and it, it sort of never went away. Like I, I would often come across things, read things that were relevant to it. And it always struck me as like um, a very provocative uh, set of ideas. But it, really what happened, and this is something obviously I write about in the first uh, chapter of the book, what happened was um, I became a father for the first time. I had a son. And for whatever reason, like part of the experience of uh, of becoming a parent for the first time and of witnessing my son's birth, um, it led to a kind of a period of uh, preoccupation with with death, with my own mortality, particularly. And transhumanism kind of came back into my mind uh, as this kind of I guess I, I got preoccupied with it in a way that like a psychoanalyst would probably say that it was a form of sublimation, that I was kind of <laughs> sublimating my my own anxieties about mortality and aging and the sort of fragility of life into this kind of project in a way, this kind of uh, this I- idea about about transcending the human condition. Um, and so, yeah, it became for me a really interesting way to channel all those kind of I guess you would call them like existential concerns or whatever. And also a lot of political stuff, anxieties about where technology is taking us and, uh, you know, capitalism in general. Uh, and so it became for me, like, I guess <clears throat> I tend to be drawn towards subjects that a are quite extreme and sort of provocative, but also I tend to think of ideal subjects as, um, it, JG Ballard has this, uh, term um, extreme metaphors, and I'm really driven to things that are extreme metaphors. And for me, uh, transhumanism is a metaphor and a very extreme one for so many different things. For you know where we are as a culture in terms of our relationship to technology, um, it's a metaphor for our sort of ideas about progress. It's for me, it's a metaphor about capitalism. And so it's in one sense, it's a very distinct sort of world that I was inserting myself into and, and getting to know about and writing about, but I always saw it as a sort of an aperture onto a much broader picture, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. So, um, that's, I know that's very useful. Um, in terms of, uh, one thing that really interested me about the book was its form, um, and, and, and trying to understand this intellectual movement, uh, this movement, I guess, which is a sort of a byproduct of, of, capitalism you had uh well what i found to be a very very distinct for style of writing and because the book is i think would it be fair to say sort of part travelogue part literature part philosophy so i'm wondering why why what is it that, that appeals to you about that style um yeah well i could sort of reverse engineer it and and sort of talk about why I write in that way. But to be honest, it's just sort of like, it's the the only way I know how to write, you know? Okay. Um, it's, it's not like a terribly sort of thought out thing, you know, style is just a, a way of solving the problem of, of like how to address a topic of how to, of how to like say what you're trying to say in as truthful a way as possible. But yeah, I mean, I guess like, uh, so, I mean, when you, like, you know, you describe it as being like a, a travelogue and all these different kinds of things. And that's true. Like there are elements of all that in there. I mean, the book has been kind of framed in various different kinds of ways. Like, you know, in, in the US, when it was published in the US, it was very much framed as like a popular science book, oh, okay. um, which, you know, is probably the most straightforward way of 
um, maybe not the most accurate description of what the book is, but certainly the like the most sensible way of marketing a book like my book. Um, and I never thought of myself for a second as writing a popular science book. I mean, I, I literally have, I don't think I've ever read a popular science book actually. <laughs> um, so I know I was shortlisted for this, um, this w- wonderful award in, in the UK, the Royal Society Science Book Prize. And I had a very, really sort of deeply embarrassing experience. <laughs> Part of the, uh, sort of, um, event or the ceremony was, uh, they sort of lined up all the shortlisted authors on on the stage, and uh, Professor Brian Cox, who's the sort of TV uh, physicist science guy, um, was interviewing us all. And one of the questions that he asked to everyone was, you know, what was this popular science book that you read growing up, or when you started to get into this whole world? What was the one book that made you want to write this kind of stuff? And luckily, I was the last person to be asked. I was <laughs> to the furthest away from him on the stage, and I literally, I was really sweating, like I couldn't think of a popular science book. Not not only one that I had like that had changed my life, but even one that I could that I could say that I had read. So I, I came up with something eventually that wasn't a popular science book. Actually, it was a book by John McPhee about um, nuclear energy. Um, but I do like so the thing is I I am drawn towards science as a topic. Um, but yeah, so like the 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 sort of the question of um, form or or categorization. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird one that I like, you know, it's it's difficult to talk about in terms of like intentionality or whatever. It just it it comes out that way. But so I, I'm not in any way an expert is the thing on on, on the topics that I'm writing about. I'm, I, I I'm not in a position to judge the scientific value or um, sort of plausibility of any of the kind of technologies that I'm writing about. So what I tend to do what I tend to have to do is sort of reduce it down to other questions about, you know, my own life or, you know, ideas that I'm taking from literature or philosophy or whatever. And I'm trying to sort of like make sense of these very complicated ideas for myself in the only way that I know how, which is using a kind of a, you know, a literary education or a literary background to try and put these things in context. And so for a long time when I was writing the book, um, particularly towards the beginning, like I really felt that I had this fascinating idea that, you know, as I talked about earlier, was something that I, you know, could potentially be used to explain so much about the world that we're currently living in. But I had this like extreme sort of self-doubt about whether I was the person to tackle this topic because I have no grounding in science. I have no knowledge of science. I have no kind of background in any of this stuff. And so I would think, you know, this is a great topic, but maybe I'm not the person to write it. Maybe someone who has, you know, a sort of a higher degree of um, authority in this stuff would be much, would be in a much better position to write this book. And it took me a really long time to kind of realize that, that, that failure on my part was actually an opportunity to do something different and new with the topic, to not write a popular science book, to not be the guy who knows what he's talking about. And which to me, is one of the least interesting sort of nonfiction positions is the guy who's an expert explaining things to you. You know, yeah, I'm, not, sure. I'm not drawn to that at all. I'm much more drawn to kind of confusion. And I guess that brings us back to uh, like, you know, the essay as a form and what I'm really attracted to, I think in writing generally is the 
kind of spectacle of someone thinking on the page, of someone trying to figure out what they think is true, someone trying to figure out what it is they think about a topic and what it is they're trying to say, um, as opposed to someone who already knows what they think and is communicating that to you. Yeah, it was sort of quite Socratic that, I think, in its own way. Um, right. The uh, Well, I mean, I think what, what I really enjoyed about sort of the form of it was a, a sort of and, and please take this the right way. I thought of a sort of it as a right. form of gonzo philosophy. Um, right. You know, it had that. I thought, oh, this is a new genre. This is fantastic. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. fine. That works for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so maybe getting into the sort of the main themes of it, you spoke already about uh, transhumanism and the, the sort of this movement which the book is about. And, um, and transhumanism, and if I put it in a shorthand, is this drive for a total emancipation from human biology by humans, I think is uh, a sort of a, a summary of it. Um, so maybe to, to help us understand a little bit more about the various manifestations of transhumanism. I mean, maybe we could talk about this idea of the singularity. Um, and this is by a chap in your book. I think it was Raymond Kurzweil. Is that correct? Yeah. Ray Kurzweil is the kind of, um, is the sort of high priest of the idea of the singularity. Basically, well, so Kurzweil is, um, I mean, he's famous for lots of different reasons. He's probably, you know, initially became, uh, very well known for his inventions. He was the invention of the flatbed scanner, um, and various other sort of gadgets that people use pretty regularly. He's also the guy behind Kurzweil organs. If you know anything about music or musical instruments, that's him. He's, he founded Kurzweil organs with, uh, uh, Kurzweil synthesizers with, uh, with, um, uh, Stevie Wonder back in the seventies. And, uh, so he's kind of, he's known as an inventor and made a lot of money out of his various inventions, but he was hired by Google in, I think 2014, uh, as director of engineering. And he's, they kind of brought him in as a sort of visionary type figure because he, what, what he's kind of become known for in recent years is this idea of the singularity. He wrote this gigantic, um, book called The Singularity is Near, which is a, a fascinating and deeply bizarre, almost kind of a religious text. Um, but it is about, um, the idea essentially that technology is, and, you know, information technology, computers specifically are, um, sort of becoming increasing in, in sophistication at, at such a sort of an exponential level that by a certain point in the kind of not too distant future, actually Kurzweil puts a date on it. He says 2045. Very precise. At this, right. Yeah. And this is part of why he's such a kind of a provocative figure and why he gets so much attention is, is precisely because he puts a date on it. Like, like the kind of guy on, you know, who's a cult leader who's saying that the world is going to end on this particular date or whatever that oh, always grabs yeah. people's attention. And so what he's saying is that at this point, um, and he's got, you know, he has a very strong track record actually, to be fair to him of predicting uh, technological progress and predicting technological change. Um, and so, you know, he's got it all sort of mapped out, but his essential argument is that at this point in the future, um, he's, he says 2045 in the book, I think he may have pushed it back slightly since. Um, at this point, technology, artificial intelligence specifically, is going to become so sophisticated and so powerful that we will as humans be able to merge with this technology and become sort of superhuman godlike creatures and we'll merge with artificial intelligence or like 
our cognitive capacities will be vastly increased. We'll be able to upload ourselves to machines and live forever. And essentially, he's talking about the end of humanity as we know it, like it's an evolutionary leap as big, if not bigger than the leap from, you know, the like higher primates to to Homo sapiens. Um, and he's predicting that this is going to happen or start happening like within our lifetimes, basically. And crucially within his own lifetime, I think 2045 is the date where he kind of can sort of still reasonably kind of predict that he's still going to be alive. So and this is like it's a it's a crazy, fascinating, wild like set of ideas. But, you know, it's it's an idea that has a certain constituency in in Silicon Valley uh, and the Google founders, you know, brought him into Google for a reason. They're kind of um, I'm not saying that they necessarily buy into all of this but they're very attracted to this kind of sort of thinking you know in a way it's in keeping with the the kind of google ethos of the moonshot you know just shooting for the stars and seeing what comes of it um and so lots of lots of sort of significant figures in in the tech world um while they might not sort of uh explicitly describe themselves as transhumanists they have some version of of these kinds of beliefs i mean i write a lot about peter thiel in the book and thiel is convinced that um we are kind of uh on the verge of some kind of uh technological um or scientific development that will allow us to sort of radically uh expand our our lifespans um Elon Musk is another pretty obvious example of someone who feels that um, some kind of merger of the human with machines is inevitable and desirable and, you know, necessary. Um, he's, he's quite preoccupied with the idea that artificial intelligence is going to kind of make us obsolete as a species and that the only way that we can kind of offset this is to uh, merge with AI ourselves to become to become kind of um, super intelligent cyborgs or whatever. And so these d- ideas are, to me, pretty insane. Um, but the fact that people who are in positions of like cultural power and influence hold these ideas says a lot, I think, about uh, about our culture. And so it's interesting from from that point of view as well as as well as the ideas themselves being interesting. Do you think there's something profoundly mythical about this, about sort of the background to this? It just reminds me of sort of the search for El Dorado or something like that, you know, this 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 desire to sort of to, to quell our death anxiety uh, with uh, the impossible. Right. I mean, well, that's the sort of paradox of the whole thing is that like none of these ideas, even though they're all predicated on like this kind of, you know, new dispensation in human history and like a, you know, a radical kind of break with everything that's come before and this kind of extreme rationalist investment in, um, you know, in science and technology being the kind of vector of human progress. At the same time, these are absolutely ancient ideas. You're right. Like they've been around for no, Prometheus, centuries. Yeah. Prometheus, right. Like, you know, uh, the philosopher's stone, the alchemists, they, they were all obsessed with, their sort of contemporary iterations of this idea. So there's absolutely nothing new about any of this stuff. And I, you know, uh, I don't sort of uh, belabor it, I hope, too heavily in the book. But, you know, the one thing that I do kind of bring out repeatedly in the book is is the religious dimension to to all this stuff that, you know, um, 
technology seems to, in a sense, be uh, the kind of the the vector for what were traditionally, you know, religious anxieties and, and yearnings about death and, uh, you know, the, the desire to transcend the kind of um, unsatisfactory reality of, of being human. Um, it's it's nothing particularly new. The kind of the gadgets are new, and the way that we're talking about this stuff is new. But it's it's all pretty old, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just trying to think back to the Prometheus myth. But if I recall, the, well, we we know the story of Prometheus, who's you know chained to a rock, I think, uh, uh, for stealing uh, technology or fire from the gods. But I think, uh, if I recall, one of the things that uh, that uh, one of the things that uh, he, he he also took from the gods was not just the technology, but uh, also optimism in technology, uh, which I always found uh, sort of a fant- uh, fantastic sort of duality. You know, you have this technology, uh, and of course, technology always promises that it will, you know, be naturally progressive. But at the same time, uh, it gives us, we have a blind spot attached to it, whereby we... Um, we don't see its destructive side. So do you think these people that you were meeting, and I mean, you did meet a wide range of people, uh, you know, Thiel, uh, Kurtzfell, um, do, you, do you think that there was they had a blind spot for, I guess, the more regressive aspects of uh, technology? Uh, yes, I, I think that is probably true. Um, but so I, I like the, the flip side of, of all these kind of utopian uh, kind of ideas about technology is to me an equally kind of hysterical and uh, religiously inflected dystopianism, uh, which I kind of look at in the book as well. And, and this kind of expresses itself through um, fairly sort of apocalyptic ideas about artificial intelligence. And, you know, I spent time with um, people whose basically whose job it was to convince the world that the prospect of artificial superintelligence going rogue and wiping out humanity was a very real prospect and something that needed to be um, kind of addressed and tackled. Um, like those ideas seem to me to be every bit as fanciful and far-fetched as the idea that, you know, artificial intelligence is going to lead us into some kind of um, paradise promised land, you know? Um, so that, that's another form of blind spot. I think that, um, there's this sense that, you know, this kind of all or nothing sense of technology as being uh, a sort of godlike power, you know, as opposed to something that is built by humans and that has human failings and, you know, that reflects political ideas and ideological blind spots and so on. Um, there's, there's a there's a real lack of engagement with with that, I think. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> it's, it just seems so... Um so much in the realm of sci-fi to it's hard to take serious you well that's the thing i mean i i sort of uh you know like th- there are moments uh and it, this happens with many of my kind of preoccupations with the things that i write about where i'm convinced that they're the most important things in the world and they're the most serious kind of um problems and topics in the world and but there's always this other flip side to it where i just want to like dismiss it you know because like who are these people with these insane ideas? You know, what, why am I taking them so seriously? Are they just like, you know, eccentric lunatics? And it's, it, I think it's sort of both and actually, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a binary proposition. Um, so like 
for instance, like someone like Peter Thiel and his um, obsession with with living forever. I I don't think that Peter Thiel is going to live forever. I think that there are um, real sort of questions to be asked about why this idea is cropping up right now amongst people as powerful and wealthy as Peter Thiel. Um, and I think those like that's really to me what the book is about. It's not about like whether it's possible that we're going to merge with artificial intelligence or that artificial intelligence is going to wipe us out or whether we're all going to become cyborgs with like, you know, brain implants and so on. What, what to me, what the book is about is this kind of set of ideas cropping up in this part of our culture and why it is that these people hold these ideas and what it is that it says about us and them. If that makes sense. Perfect sense. Like, what, what you, yeah. so what, what do you, and what, what do you think it, that is? Is a, is it at this particular juncture or this moment in late capitalism that's generating all of these ideas and allowing this, uh, to come to fruition? Because as you, as you sort of say in the book, like it's, there's a lot of research being done on this, uh, transhumanism. Like there's, you know, it's at universities, corporations, Silicon Valley billionaires, as you say. In the military, you talk a lot about robots in the book. It's, 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 it's there. It's being done. And there's a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like, so like one of the other, like you, you mentioned the sort of difficulty of, um, like it seems like sci-fi. And, and that was another kind of dimension of the book for me. Like in the same way that I'm not particularly well grounded in science itself. Um, I also had to go on a bit of a sort of crash course uh, with with sci-fi. I hadn't read much of the kind of canonical stuff that that the transhumanist kind of ideas draw from. So, you know, I hadn't before I sort of embarked on this project. I hadn't read much in the way of like Arthur C. Clarke or Philip K. Dick or That's good stuff. Uh, or, well, there's some amazing ideas in there, yeah, and like amazing writing. Um, and so what what sort of became clear to me at a certain point when I was writing the book was that. Well, first of all, from meeting these people and, and talking to them and talking to them about how they came to these ideas and how they came to um, become transhumanists, uh, like so much of it came out of reading science fiction. It came out of like imagined worlds and uh, like a lot of the sort of scientific stuff, a lot of the technology that we have now appears first in science fiction and so and, and even things that like people are concerned about, like the so, you know, the, the rogue artificial intelligence or whatever. I mean, obviously, that's an idea that's been sort of cropping up in science in sort of mid century science fiction. Um, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey is the kind of obvious example of that. The Terminator, all those things like these are ideas that come from fiction. And so what really kind of became very intriguing to me as I was writing the book was this kind of feedback loop between fictional realities and what then becomes a preoccupation of actual scientists and actual um, technologists. And so things, you know, uh, happen first in fiction and then they sort of happen in, in a slightly different way in reality. And then the scientific reality feeds back into fiction. And it's this very kind of, um, fluid sort of boundary between uh, fictional world and, and the real world to the point where you're not quite sure what's what, you know? Um, and that's very fascinating to me, actually. Well, one of the things in the book as well, uh, speaking about maybe perhaps uh, the people was this, I mean, well, one of the things I admired about the book was that you had, a, you were very, um, 
you were very sympathetic to a lot of these uh, the, the people in the book I found um, when it would have been easy to be uh, critical or dismissive. Um, so I thought there was this very nice, nice mix of sort of the banal and the sort of insanely speculative uh, in the book. Uh, and I think one of the examples of this when you uh, you visited the the, cry- the, the cryotics uh, factory was it in Phoenix I think yeah yeah where you, if yeah. I recall in the book you kind of had this uh, it was this like um, sort of cryonics factory where you had people stored or uh, corpses stored um, and it was a sort of in this very sort of uh, like in a very sort of banal industrial estate right? yeah yeah so yeah. I'm wondering right now at this juncture what at this time what is it that's sort of bringing these two things together the uh, are we living in fictional times you know where we have the fictional reality or blurring you know this is like there's lots of philosophers like Lyotard and Baudrillard mm. who talks about these type of uh, you know hyper real effects. Yeah, I think that's like that's a really interesting sort of thing to bring to bear on this because, like, I, I think like I I definitely in writing this book and it, like in the stuff that I'm writing about in general, my sort of like my current project, which is sort of linked to this, I like you know. F- like it's the more you think about it, the more seriously you think about the world and politics, the more you have to acknowledge that like our world is sort of largely constituted by fictions. Um, and I, I like, I, I have a lot of friends who are novelists and, you know, uh, one of the sort of big conversations that's been going on for the last few years is around like, you know, um, what, why would anyone write fiction at this time when reality is so <laughs> crazy? And so I like, I, I really, I revere the novel. I revere people who write fiction. And I think that that's a, it's a kind of a, it's a category error in a way because fiction it, to, to me is the thing that gets at reality in this, in, in, in its kind of, in its realness in a way, you know, I, I, I think of, um, I thought a lot about Don DeLillo when I was writing this book and the, the, you know, the epigraph for the book is, is from DeLillo's white noise. And when I was, um, towards the end of when I was writing the book, when I was finishing it up, he published, um, zero K, which is about cryonics and, and in a way, uh, a fictional kind of representation of, of what I had experienced when I was writing the book. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think I've sort of got slightly off the point there, but I guess what I was trying to get at initially is the way in which like so much of how we live our lives and so much of what constitutes our societies and our politics is, you know, stories. It is fiction. Yeah, the myths we live um, by as Mary Midgley says. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I mean, I read that book when I was writing, writing to be a machine as well. And she, she nails a lot of this stuff and she's very much, um, she's one of these people who, uh, pours cold water on the idea of, you know, rationalism and, you know, yeah, that's right. that, a lot about... that radical scientific reductionism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Th- those, you know, th- those ideas, those people are every bit as bound up in fictions as the rest of us. And, you know, possibly more so in a lot of cases. Yeah. I think, I think uh, that, that, that phrase always comes back to me from your book. Uh, you said that this transhumanism, you know, which you see is sort of fictive and a narrative in itself, uh, hmm. where we have this mix of of humans who can have tech, implants, cryogenics, AI, all of these things. Um, it's 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 not real, and it's, it's it's it is a very very sort of a fictional thing. But you said in in, in the in the in the book, I think it was you call it an extreme manifestation of positivism, 
which I thought was a very evocative way of, uh, of putting it. I think that's right, if I if I recall. And uh, so you sort of see a direct line between that sort of hyper-rationalism that you get in, I guess, positivist philosophy uh, and uh, this very uh, uh, sort of techno-fetishism. Right. I think, yeah, I, I think it like there's a lineage between uh, that sort of set of ideas and, and cybernetics and uh, and what I'm looking at in the book, because like it all seems to me to be a kind of a reduction of the sort of vast and bewildering complexity of human experience and human being to a basically kind of mechanistic uh, kind of view. Yeah, you know? yeah, like Leo Tara calls it like the logic of performativity or sort of, you know, heightened, a desire for heightened efficiency. Right. Yeah. And that's, that, that's the kind of presiding idea of our time, I think. Um, I think, you know, I, and I'm susceptible to it as well. I mean, part of what, like this book grows out of, like, obviously I'm absolutely opposed to, where transhumanism wants to take us. Um, and I'm opposed to a lot of what it grows out of in terms of like libertarianism and the politics of it. But I do like, it does initially come out of this whole book comes out of, uh, a, a basic kind of identification with the kind of dissatisfaction with the human condition, I suppose, you know, like mortality and, sort of even inefficiency, like uh, this book actually initially, the, you know, to, to go back to your very, very first question, actually, where the book came from, there's another way of answering that, which is that I was trying to write a book, uh, which was sort of a way of negotiating my own frustration with myself. Um, and it became <laughs> a project about efficiency and, um, you know, productivity. And it, I, I ended up kind of abandoning it because it became uh, a book about the sort of self-help industry and uh, 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 like a, an attempt to kind of negotiate my own dissatisfactions with myself through kind of metabolizing, you know, this whole sort of self-help kind of industry. Um, but transhumanism seemed to me to be kind of a species level expression of that kind of yearning for efficiency and productivity. And so like, I kind of, there, there was like a, a core of identification with it, but it was like an identification that I wanted to resist and kind of, um, and examine critically, you know? Yeah. But I guess though your, your niche then is, uh, it, it's, I mean, transhumanism is, is the sort of the ultimate form of self-help, I guess. Yeah. Uh, to the point of, I mean, that's, that's the paradox at the center of the book in a way is that it is all about the self. It's all about individualism. It's all about like the absolute kind of attainment of the idealized self. But it's such an extreme investment in the self that it actually obliterates any kind of humanist understanding of the self. I mean, like literally the transhumanist kind of vision, as I understand it, is one in which you as a, as a person, as a subject become completely subsumed by technology and you become something other than the self you know you become uh much vaster and more diffuse and so like for me the kind of key moment in the book is um is the moment where i'm in the in the basement talking to the to the cyborg guys in pittsburgh that i spend time with and uh we've all been drinking and everyone's a little bit stoned and the conversation 
sort of turns to uh what is it that you like what is your end game what what do you want and one of them um marlo is the young kind of intern in the company describes what his vision of his future self is and it's like this kind of um information seeking node traveling through the sort of you know reaches of the cosmos um and it basically it, it seemed like death to me it seemed like a kind of a a hallucinatory vision of of non-existence actually um and so that was where i really came up against the like absolute strangeness and otherness of transhumanists vision of a fully achieved self which seemed to me to be almost indistinguishable in a way from death yeah so i mean it's like uh i guess it is an expression of extreme narcissism then it's like uh like uh, my body locates me, it ties me to a particular point in space and time in the material world. Whereas mm. with the trans, to be this type of, uh, to be literally a form of information transferal, where you can be right. anywhere in the universe, therefore the universe is me, which is right. Right. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, I never quite thought of it that way, surprisingly, because I mean, a lot of my postgraduate work was on psychoanalysis and narcissism, actually. And one of the things that I became preoccupied was exactly what you're saying is the sort of paradox of narcissism, which is that, you know, it is about, uh, you know, an extreme kind of investment in the self, but it's, it's not pure egotism. It's actually pure egotism. It's actually an anxiety about the nothingness of the self. It's actually about, um, yeah. a sort of a fear of disintegration. Um, and I think that probably is relevant to what we've been talking about in a way that I'm slightly mystified that I <laughs> that I missed that when I was writing the book. But there you go. Yeah, I mean, Freud, Freud says that, doesn't he? I mean, it's, it's kind of narcissism is premised on weakness, essentially, of, or some kind of right. weakness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah fascinating. Um, now, in terms of um, so, uh, I guess there there was. I mean, you you say the book was written out of sort of a, I guess, a, a form of. A, uh, dissatisfaction, uh, well, it, with yourself or aspects of yourself at least. And I found that the book was quite, um, well, it was quite affirmative, uh, in sort of the alternative you posed. There was a sort of an ethical dimension to the book, to the book because, I mean, a lot of it is told around anecdotes which you're, um, your young son at the time, who you're sort of contrasting to, you know, this very small, young, frail creature, uh, to this, uh, who you're contrasting to these, uh, to these ideas about sort of uh, immortality and uh, uh, cybernetics and sort of uh, robust uh, technologies, which would allow us to transcend ourselves. Um, but it's, I guess what I want to ask you specifically is that. Is there a sort of a, a positive ethics, if you like, in the book about things like human embodiment or fallibility, human finitude? Um, I like I don't know that I would be fully confident saying that, yes, there is a positive ethics there, because like y you as a philosopher have probably recognized that I like I'm very flattered by your description of what I'm doing as gonzo philosophy, <laughs> but I don't have that sort of analytic kind of uh sort of register to my thinking and so uh i'm never quite able to reach a like a bottom line philosophically but i think you're right i think there is like i think there is uh a yearning towards some kind of positive engagement with the the, the sort of imperfections and failures and ultimate entropy of of being human 
that, you know, like one of the kind of stranger aspects of, of writing the book for me was having to sort of make a case for death actually. And because, you know, the book, like I've been saying, arises out of a fear of mortality and a kind of a sense that it is in fact unacceptable that we have to die. You know, it's a terrible thing that we're all going to die and everyone we love is going to die. But at the same time, there is this kind of attempt in the book to like reckon with, uh, with the fact of mortality as maybe something that like, is not separable from being human that it is for better or worse maybe the kind of the source of our humanity um and so like i'm never quite explicitly making that argument in any kind of direct way but all that stuff that you've just mentioned all that stuff about you know having those conversations with my son about death and with like there's kind of the stuff in the book about, you know, embodiment and, and love and all that. I mean, that is a way of trying to and maybe actually to get to some kind of positive ethics, actually. Maybe, maybe you're right about that. Yeah. Well, it's just a thought. Um, um, what you just mentioned there just sort of reminds me also of sort of, um, sort of a dimension of sort of Plato. I mean, you know, not the sort of the world of forms uh, kind of thing, but uh, very basic since Plato thought that, um, uh, how should I put it? That you know, if you can, uh, it is it is uh, it is essential to confront death in order to establish a relationship with truth, right? Mm. And then I think that's what you're saying. I mean, that seems to be where you sort of in the book. I guess that in some way, this confrontation with mortality or with finitude reveals something truthful about our relationship with the world, whereas perhaps the transhumanists are, in fact missing that but they're they're not confronting the truth of humanity yeah i think i think there's something to that and i think that like i've become you know even since writing the book i've become more and more kind of drawn towards the idea of like what would it mean to like have a good death what would it mean to like leave the world in a way that you were happy to leave it if that makes sense um, rather than clinging to existence, rather than clinging to yourself, uh, clinging to experience, what would it mean to um, to die well? You know, uh, and that's obviously like the oldest philosophical question indeed, there yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, you're getting into but philosophical. It's funny how you, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you arrive at these things not for me anyway. Sometimes you arrive at these things that are the most obvious questions, the most kind of fundamental questions that philosophers have, like. Uh, sort of reckoned with for millennia and you arrive at them sort of in a personal way actually that's when they feel real right okay that's really good um so with regard to all of this then i mean do you i mean one question i'm interested in asking you as i said like that you know transhumanism is a very real thing it's got economic backing uh, very very serious economic backing uh, with the likes of, um, I guess, people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, you know, these are these are you know these are these these guys have got a lot of money and they're investing in this. So, what do you think is the future of uh, transhumanism, or what do you think is the future of the trends you examine? Do you um, do you think it's possible to envisage it becoming more, uh, I go more mainstream, for want of a better word? 
Um, it's really hard to say. I like, I, I actually, I, like, I don't think that many of the technologies that I write about in the book, like, you know, brain uploading and like sort of superhuman level artificial intelligence and, you know, mergers with, with, you know, uh, with technology, I, I, I don't personally feel that they're imminent and that they're going to, you know, really impact on, on human lives in the short, medium, or even long term. Um, but possibly some of these, um, technologies might, I mean, I guess maybe like the space race or something like that, that they kind of give off these kind of supplementary kind of technological innovations almost uh, kind of accidentally or whatever. So, but yeah, I mean, I think I, like so many of these ideas are so speculative and so kind of, um, so far ahead of anything that might be achievable in the sort of short to medium term that it just like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't foresee a transhumanist future at all, but I mean, I, I end the book on this note of like, you know, I've, you know, I've been talking about the future all along and engaging with people who are preoccupied with the future and what's going to happen in 50 years time and a hundred years time. And this sort of realization that actually there is no future, that there's only the present. And like, I've been writing about the present all along and really thinking about the future is just an angle at which you approach the present. That's really for me what the book is about. It's very stoic, Mark. Um, <laughs> with the um, well, I've only got a couple of more questions, but uh, one one thing that question leads me on to the next question. Uh, I mean, I recently read one of your articles uh, in the Guardian uh, where you're talking about. Uh, I guess you're continuing. This is your next project, but you're looking at uh, the concept of the apocalypse. I guess uh, and. That to me is interesting, is uh, because uh, well, what's the apocalypse other other than the absolute closing down of the future? Is where nothing else, nothing can happen afterwards. It's the end of the world. So, mm. so I mean, I'm wondering how wh where's the overlap between uh, your work and to be a machine, and I guess um, what you've been writing about in in, in the Guardian, and and uh, I'm, I'm assuming this is a current project you're doing. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it is like the, the Guardian piece is, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily part of the book that I'm writing, but it's, it definitely comes out of the, comes out of the, the project, which is about, um, apocalyptic anxieties again, as a way of, uh, not, not so much predicting what's going to happen in the future, but as a way of like trying to get to grips with, uh, you know, the sort of apocalyptic tenor of, of the time we're currently living in, in terms of like, you know, technology and climate change and sort of breakdown of, political structures and so on. Um, so yeah, I mean, like we, it sounds weird to say, but like that, it took me a really long time to come to like the idea of the apocalypse as the sort of organizing principle of my next book, because like, it seems like a very obvious next step in a way. And in retrospect, it is completely obvious because, you know, there's a certain sense in which transhumanism is, a purely apocalyptic idea. It's the end of humanity, ideas. right, yeah. Exactly. And even like, so, you know, we started out talking about Ray Kurzweil and the singularity. That's an apocalyptic vision. That's a, that's a, like a, an eschatological, uh, philosophy in a way, uh, or like sort of prophecy. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, definitely there is like, there is a shared 
kind of preoccupation that runs through what I did in the last book and what I'm currently doing. Um, yeah. Like I wonder why, like I've, I've, you know, friends who are writers who kind of look slightly askance at my, uh, sort of helpless, um, sort of attraction to like gigantic, like apocalyptic ideas. A friend of mine who's a playwright said to me a while ago, he's like, he said he was kind of trying to figure out why, why it is that I like have to like go for these like gigantic topics. And he said something that really sort of rattled me and struck me as sort of quite psychologically like um, perceptive. He said that there's something about the idea of the apocalypse that is in itself apocalyptic in that it, completely shuts down the possibility of all other topics. So it's like the subject to end all other subjects, because if you're talking about the apocalypse, there's literally nothing more important you could be talking about. You know, the the idea that the world is imminently about to end uh, sort of makes a mockery of all other concerns. Um, So I thought it was pretty neat. But yeah, maybe there's something to that. I think I remember, uh, I think was that essay Derrida wrote uh, years ago, the uh, apocalyptic tone. Um, Right. But he was... um, I mean, one of the things he sort of he riffed around the etymology of it, but the isn't the, isn't the apocalyptic? It's it's kind of sort of got a dual meaning, as like it's like it's it's something which is the absolute end, but it's also a type of revelation. Well, well, it is. I mean, it literally means like in Greek, it means revelation. So there's nothing there's nothing inherently eschatological about the term apocalypse. Like when we talk, like when we talk about the apocalypse of John, we just mean the revelation yeah. of John. So yeah, like there it is. Always write about these things, I guess. <laughs> sure, uh, uh, yeah. you don't hear that very often, actually. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, there's a great line. I think that's the essay. Where there's a line in it. Was like, is it the title of the essay? No apocalypse, not now. Is that what it's called? Yeah, something like that. I, I can't, it yeah. escapes me. Yeah, a long time since I read it. But um, yeah, so I mean, again, this, this this theme of the apocalypse, it is looking again. I guess it's a question of capitalism for me that it, it, it interests because that article in the Guardian very much focuses around. Uh, Peter Thiel's investments in New Zealand and it's like it's kind of it, it seems to make sense because Thiel is a sort of a radical libertarian and it's like at the end of the world is kind of he uses his sort of billions to to I guess uh, well to sort of create this sort of survivalist paradise right I mean that's that, that's the thing that's sort of fascinating to me about and when I talk about the apocalypse I'm not talking about the end of the world or the wiping out of humanity. I'm talking about like a sort of a, a, a set of like anxieties yeah. about collapse really. And so what what's different now about the apocalypse obviously is that, you know, like, in a way that's quite similar to transhumanism actually, in that, you know, this was traditionally for many centuries, the preserve of religious thinking and now it's become secularized. And so, in the past, the apocalypse was something that was external. It was like a decision that God made that he was going to come down with a judgment and judge humanity to be, you know, iniquitous. And he's, he's like, he's, he's clearing the table. And so it's, we, you know, we have no control over it whatsoever. Whereas now the apocalypse is something that comes from within us and it's slow and insidious and it's kind of like incremental. And we're we're part of it in this very kind of impotent way. We can't decide to stop it, but it is sort of our doing in a way. But it's also not final. And so, like the, the sort of traditional apocalypse of like you know ancient mythology and the Bible and Christian eschatology is absolutely final. It's the end, and it, there's an exhilaration to that. 
whereas now the apocalypse is ongoing and it's also sort of unevenly distributed. So which is why you have Peter Thiel sort of preparing for the apocalypse. And, you know, uh, even, you know, something that really grabbed my attention over the last year was um, an article in I think it was the Wall Street Journal. And it was it was around the time that the sort of really extreme saber rattling between North Korea and America was happening. And Trump was sort of talking about fire and fury at the UN and so on. And there was this um, article in the Wall Street Journal about what like how nuclear war would affect the stock market. And it was by no means clear from the article that the stock market would be wiped out, that it would sort of there would be fluctuations, but capitalism would would continue to sort of thrive. Mm. And so I thought that was maybe the clearest example that I'd seen of the kind of uh, axiom that, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Mm. And so, I mean, that's... Zizek's point, living in the end times as well, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so I do detect a sort of a common denominator there. I mean, I think one of the things you mentioned in the article was that there's something narcissistic about sort of the apocalypse as well, that it's, you know, it's... uh, We always think it applies to us and that our time is exceptional and it's it's our culture that uh, that is worthy of bringing about the end of the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the other paradoxes is that, yeah, like every generation of humans, probably <laughs> since like God knows when, has considered themselves to be the last generation in some way. I mean, like Christianity, which is the kind of so much of the DNA of our culture. Christianity is literally, you know, begins as an apocalyptic sect of Judaism. Like, you know, uh, St. Paul believed that he was alive he was, you know, the, the the people around him were all going to witness the end of the world. You know, Jesus seemed to have believed the same thing. And so, like, I think there's something to that, that like so much of this sort of bedrock of our culture in the West and Europe is built on that apocalyptic idea. And America seems to me to be like really an apocalyptic kind of culture in a way. You know, it's like I, I keep going back to the fact that it's like, Obviously, the, the frontier mythology is a huge part of of American kind of of the American sort of cultural mystique, but also the fact that you know America is built on the wipeout of a civilization. You, you know, you you couldn't have, you know, America would not have existed without the, the the wiping out of the native civilization. And so there is something really like apocalyptic in the DNA of uh, America and of like the West in general. I think, and so. What's interesting is that it's it's coming back in these weirdly kind of secularized ways. But like the, the the thing for me is that well, there is kind of an apocalypse happening in a way. Like climate change is this non-negotiable thing that's on the horizon, but it's kind of a like an insidious apocalypse, and it's like maybe is already happening, and maybe it's like there's no coming back from it. But um, yeah, it's not it's not the apocalypse of of your, you know, it's, it's, it's different. Apocalypse 2.0, right. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we need a new word. Maybe we need a new, a new way of thinking. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got one last question for you, Mark. Um, oh, sort of a, I guess it's sort of a silly question. Please. Do you, I mean, I would all, would, would sort of the, you know, the, the themes of, uh, to be a machine where you sort of, sort of try to confront your own mortality and the sort of, uh, an alternative take to mortality. Um, do you, and now that you're looking at the apocalypse, which is possibly the most destructive of all things, as your friend has said, 
Um, do, do you uh, is is the, do you have uh, do you have optimism? Yeah, no, I do actually. Um, it's, I don't know that it's like an an intellectual optimism. Like I think, like I've always been for, for for most of my like adult life, I would have considered myself a pessimist. I was like always really drawn to like Schopenhauer and Turin and those kind of writers because uh, it seemed to me that they had like access to the unvarnished truth of like human experience. Although I was, I've never been an unhappy person. I've always had the sense that like human life is <laughs> essentially an unhappy occurrence, and I've moved away from that weirdly. Uh, in recent years, part of it has to do with being a parent, I think, and just, uh, you know, not just being happier myself, but also being invested in the happiness of other people in a much more kind of visceral and intimate way. And there's something about having children um, that sort of forces you to be optimistic, I think, um, because uh, my sort of sense of it is that pessimism i don't i don't necessarily feel that pessimism like philosophical pessimism is the unvarnished truth of human experience anymore and i also feel that it's although it's a seductive way of being in the world in a certain sense for me there there are definite like literary seductions to pessimism like i've always revered uh, beckett for instance and what i get from him is this like absolute black kind of reading of of like human experience i've always found that very seductive but the the basic kind of thing that i feel now is that like pessimism is actually useless and it's it's worse than useless you know maybe maybe life is terrible it can be terrible but it's also very beautiful at times and to like you know both both pessimism and optimism to like to, to absolutely occupy either of those positions seems to me to be kind of um essentially missing the point or at least uh over essentializing um experience <laughs> okay so. i think that's a really good place to end mark <laughs> okay okay thanks thank you for listening to the well our theme tune is love the government by Papa giraffe and is licensed under creative commons you can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Trotskyists, union leaders, communist union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government.